OrbitFab is building gas stations in space. We want to support that transition from a space economy to an economy in space. So an economy in space is where you're actually exchanging goods and services in space, and it doesn't exist right now. Uh, but we want to support that. And so what is the infrastructure that's needed so that people can then build an economy in space? And we saw propellant as a key part because what it gives you is mobility. It gives you the ability to move around, which currently doesn't exist. You put a satellite up mm -hmm. and most of the operations really are around trying to minimize how much fuel you use. They're trying to minimize how much you have to move, which breaks my brain. I mean, we don't get in a car and think, all right, what's the, what's the shortest way to get to the shops? And how can I go to the shops the least number of times this month? But that's, but that's how satellites are operated. So if we can break that paradigm, a lot more business models will be opened up. And people will be able to do things, exchange things, and operate in space. This is Jason Canigan, host of the Cold Star Project. I am super excited to be here. I wasn't sure if he'd show up because we've missed each other a few times. But this is Daniel Faber, uh, formerly of DSI fame. I tell you, back in 2014, 2015, I got serious about getting into space. And I still had this limiting belief of I'm not a scientist. And he knows this story. I shared it with him months and months ago. He may have forgotten. <laughs> but, you know, oh, I'm not a scientist. I can't get into uh, to space and they were you know asteroid mining has been like a, a dream of mine since i was a, a kid a teenager and uh, i remember being told oh that's fantasy by someone at my high school well, ha ha there were two companies one was a bit flashier called planetary resources and one was more serious called dsi and there was a fellow named uh, john lewis dr john lewis who wrote asteroid mining 101 and these were early days, Dad. I was like, oh, my, you know, this is, it was like reading the Bible, you know, <laughs> reading through that book. And uh, I, was, I was so excited that they were actually asteroid mining companies. So this is the, the, the area that you come from. Um, and now you're a CEO of this company called OrbitFab, which anytime I forget, as you've told me, I can look at your shirt. And there it is. So <laughs> thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks. Great to be here, Jason. Glad that we finally uh, made this happen. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, um, yeah, I, I, I also read one of John Lewis's books back in the day, and he's written mm -hmm. 20 or 30 of them mm -hmm. on, on space resources. And, uh, and I was equally fascinated, amazed, and actually had the chance. I was at a, uh, uh, an event at NASA Ames, gosh, about mm -hmm. a decade ago now, maybe more. And, uh, and John Lewis showed up for a day and uh, I was over the moon. We'd, we'd formed a little asteroid mining theoretical working group thing at the time. And I actually got to meet John in person. Little did I know that uh, a decade later, we'd actually have him in the company and be working right. together. Yeah, he was the chief scientist, yeah, at the time. So yeah. what got you into asteroid mining? What was that process like and, and then coalescing into DSI? Oh, gosh, what got me into this? In 25 years ago, when I was in first year undergrad, I decided that it would be a, uh, an interesting career and, and really useful to the world if we could just create some permanent jobs in space to get people off this rock. Um, and, you know, thinking, thinking about how that would happen and how we would get an expansion of people into, into space and into the solar system um, to, to address some existential risks, I couldn't see the governments funding that program. Um, you know, limited budgets, different types of incentives. It needed to be a, a sort of profit incentive. So I wrote down a list of all the companies that I thought could possibly um, justify that cost of keeping someone on orbit. And there are only two industries, tourism and mining. They were the only two on my list. And I couldn't see myself as a tour operator. So since then, I've been looking at asteroid mining. How do we make the technologies? How do we make the business plans? And I realized it's probably going to take my whole life and I'm not sure that we'll get there. Um, but if I can make a dent in this, I will. And that's, that's what I've been chipping away at. So I uh, managed to get myself on the core team of about a dozen 
satellite projects that have gone up to orbit uh, and then started building companies because that was clearly there was no one else who was going to do this and I needed to go beyond the technology into the business plans. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, eventually ended up leading deep space industries where our big, hairy, audacious goal was to go and mine an asteroid. And, uh, and yeah, we made some progress, made some real progress mm -hmm. on that. Um, uh, that ended up uh, coalescing around the, the whole business idea of building small thrusters that could move satellites around in orbit. But those thrusters could run off propellants that one day we could get out of an asteroid. So a very strategic decision to find a gap in the market, and serve it in a way that created a future market. And so that, that allowed us then to uh, sort of attach our vision to what we're working on in a very practical way, found a good market for those thrusters, and that ended up getting acquired by a, uh, a European thruster manufacturer. And so from that, moved on to the next step, let's create that market in orbit for those propellants. And that's what OrbitFab is. And so one day I want to be able to put a purchase order with an asteroid mining company and actually buy some of that material. And of ah. course, if there are no asteroid mining companies operating at the time, I'll probably go back and set up another one so I can be my own customer. Right. It, it, it's, it's amazing, isn't it? You have to learn all these technical pieces to get it done. And then there's got to be that economic use case, right? Which I think has been the biggest challenge. And I, my suspicion is that somebody's going to have to take the punch <laughs> and go up there and invest their own resources and create the capability and capacity. And then once a little bit of that is available, then I think other people will jump on it and go, oh, we can do that now. But I don't know. You're, you, you're much more experienced with this than I am. Is that, you know, near what you think or, or do you have a different opinion? I definitely want somebody does it. Um, uh -huh. then it's going to be much easier for everybody else. And there's a great book out there, Zero to One, right? Mm -hmm. How do we go from zero asteroid mines to one asteroid mine? It's much easier to go from one to 10 and from 10 to 1,000. But how do you mm -hmm. get from zero to one? Um, and yeah, that's, that's now become an obsession of mine. How do you bootstrap something without having to ask for a trillion dollars, without mm -hmm. having to, to do five impossible things before you get there? How do you break it down into a, into a tractable problem? I also realized having wrapped my head around the engineering and figured out, okay, we can, we can probably work our way through the engineering problems that actually the engineering isn't the most important thing. It's not the most difficult thing. The business models mm -hmm. are the most difficult thing. And so that's why I went into onto the business side of things. So yeah, that, as an engineer, that was a, a real, um, a real hard thing to, uh, to accept. I'd right. much prefer to be working on the tech. You have an MBA as well. I got an MBA actually uh, last year. So mm. I started an MBA at the same time that I started OrbitFab, which is about as crazy as it gets. Um, managed to survive that process, and now I can put 100% of my efforts into the company. But uh, yeah, I got an MBA from UCLA Anderson and the National University of Singapore. It was a combined degree. So okay. really, and, really and interesting network in most cases. Was the intention of that to help you form business models? Or did you have another purpose? Yeah, in, in the next 30 years, I think every type of business will get a foothold in space. And when it comes to organizing the first real estate play or a sewage treatment works or a medical facility or a sports uh, enterprise or something, I wanted to be able to call on that network and say, hey, now's the time to write the business plan. Uh, would you like in? Let's sit down and, and be able to get their time for a few hours to flesh out what that might look like. Um, okay. Yeah, that's, that's, why, that's one of the main reasons I did it. Before we started OrbitFab, I was actually looking at a play in entertainment content creation. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that there's an interesting market there to create an opportunity to create a new export from space so that we have something other than mining and tourism uh, to look forward to, to create those jobs and the economic revenue. And, uh, and I realized 
I couldn't run that business because I had no idea how to sell into entertainment. It's a, huh. it's a world that's completely new to me. And that's one of the reasons I chose to do an MBA in, in, in LA is because the industry is there. So uh, that was the kind of thinking I had and why I did it. Okay. All right. So looking for that blue ocean again, um, as opposed to trying to compete with everybody else. So yep. what, like, let's take us through a journey then. What was the most challenging thing about getting DSI off the ground? And then I've got a follow-up question related to Orbit Fab <laughs> based on that. <laughs> the most challenging thing is getting DSI off the ground. Wow. Um, so I was one of 12 co-founders. Um, mm. And, uh, and I, I didn't have as much control in, in how it was structured when it was founded. So I actually joined the company full-time 18 months after it had been founded. And, uh, and I joined in, uh, as the chief operating officer, having been sort of chief spacecraft designer part-time. Uh, but then um, after a couple of months, took over as uh, once I was in the US, I took over as CEO uh, and sort of took the company forward from there. So yeah, what was the most difficult things? Because I inherited a company structure and, uh, and a, a cap table and a board of directors and everything else, I was working for them. And so I had to work that dynamic where customers weren't ready to buy asteroid mining, but the ambitions of the company and fantastic people, they really wanted to have an asteroid mining company. So I was trying to sell something that nobody really wanted to buy, trying to build something they would want to buy and trying to wrestle with how we message that both to the customers and to the shareholders and to other stakeholders that we had. Um, so there was, there was a constant thing around messaging, vision, how that looks. Um, I got a lot of experience out of that, that uh, you know, lessons yeah. that, that I've learned and things like that, but also just learning how to work in that complex environment with, with the, the people relations was a, you know, a huge thing to have under my belt now. Stressful. Right. I think I would find that infuriating when you said 12 co-founders and a board, I was like, Oh my gosh, instantly, you know, just so many, so many people to please, right. Uh, before you can, yep. you can move forward. So having had that experience, it, it, this kind of helps me answer that question as well, or anticipate the answer. When you went to create orbit fab, what did you do differently to, to ensure that the stresses and the frustrations uh, didn't happen again? There was a saying that I'd heard, um, cleanliness is next to godliness. Uh, it's definitely true when it comes to cap tables. Um, so we wanted to be very careful about who owned a part of the company. We wanted people who had that to be able to contribute to the success of the company going forward. So um, yeah, we, we were very careful about then who we brought on, uh, who, we, who we talked to uh, from the investor side, the partners, the employees, that kind of thing, uh, a lot more cautious. And the other thing was uh, having started this with, with my co-founder, he and I had control over the messaging and the direction of the company. And because I've done this a few times, I knew that there would come points we would have to pivot. But then until we bring on more investors and, and they have a say, and which will, will happen, hasn't quite happened yet. But at the moment, it's still my co-founder and I who decide whether we pivot, what we need to do in the messaging and everything else. So, um, you know, the, there are, are challenges to that. We don't want to get into a groupthink situation where just the two of us have an idea and can't be changed. So we surround ourselves with advisors and everything else, but it definitely simplifies the decision-making process. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you've said keep it simple, minimize the number of people. Uh, I know that um, <laughs> we want to keep stock to ourselves, right, and not not give it away to investors it's, as much as possible. It's more than possible. that. If you get obsessed yeah. about yeah. ownership and about mm -hmm. holding that stock, you will run into challenges. Mm -hmm. However, um, 
what you need to do is to make sure that the cap table makes sense to incentivize the right people at the right time. Mm -hmm. So an investor coming in, for example, doesn't want to see a cap table that's full of people who've done things but are no longer able to contribute because they say, okay, I'm going to own X percent. You'll own Y percent. Because of that ownership, you're incentivized to make this work. But if you don't own enough, maybe you can be better incentivized by somebody else offering you something elsewhere. And I don't want you distracted. So if we take, you know, the, the 50% of the company, um, how much of that goes to the employees to incentivize them? How much of that goes to who, who else do you need? Can you, can you give some to your suppliers to make sure they're properly incentivized? Can you give some, stock is an incentive mechanism. Mm -hmm. And if you look at it like that and don't worry too much about the ownership, if you're important to the company, you'll get a stake, mm. right? Because <laughs> you'll, Everybody who's in the company will recognize, including the investors, management, everybody, founders, that you should be incentivized. And if you put it in that, in that perspective, you're also able to defend your stake a lot better mm -hmm. because then you realize it's all about what you can contribute to the company on an on, ongoing, forward-looking basis. You can't afford to be second best. You need to be first, and that requires speed. Now, if you're thinking that growth is supposed to be slow and steady, Frankly, the way I was taught back in the 90s in the operations management and business administration programs, you are too slow. We have to adapt. And in space, it's no different than anywhere else. People like to think they're special in space, and it is fun, all the stuff we get to work on. But business is business. The fundamentals nowadays are conservative growth is not good. You need to run as fast as you can and risk outstripping your supply lines, which means in our world, using up the capital that we've got. That's a risk. But there is no prize for second place. There certainly is no prize for third. If you want to scale operationally fast, come talk to us at Cold Star Tech. We are the process experts for scaling fast. Now back to the interview. So two words that have popped into my head from what you've been saying are alignment and focus. That, so focus, really I haven't important. even really yeah. focus. I haven't really got into. I've got a whole lecture on focus. Mm -hmm. Well, let's give a little bit of it then. Go ahead. <laughs> and yeah, I think the focus is probably the only asset that a startup has that's worth anything. Hmm. Um, because an idea and a couple uh, and five dollars will get you a cup of coffee. Um, yeah. Maybe more, more, maybe not even that in in Silicon Valley. <laughs> the uh, the coffee is expensive, so it, it's all about execution. Uh, and execution is is a lot about focus. At a startup, you get to focus on one thing and you get to execute on that and pay attention to it. Big companies are drawn in a hundred different ways. They have core competencies and at times they can focus. But as a startup, we can focus and we can shift that focus very quickly. And that's our, that's our biggest asset. Now, when we apply that, we can get things done quickly. So for example, um, we focused uh, when we first got funded uh, at OrbitFab, we focused on getting hardware to the International Space Station to prove that as a team we could do that, to get some credibility, to test some of our equipment. There are a lot of reasons that we wanted to do that. But we put 100% of our efforts into that. And as soon as we got through that, it took us four and a half months to go from a napkin sketch to hardware that NASA accepted, signed off, like fully flight qualified to human rated standards to fly to the space station. As soon as we got through with that, we're like, all right, what is our new focus? And so similarly, we focused on business development with commercial customers and then realized uh, nine months after we'd got that funding, we went to one conference that was um, government focused. In fact, I didn't even go to that conference. I sent other people to that conference and they came back saying, there's a, there's a lot of interest from the government, from different bits of the government. Um, we should pay attention to that. 
So we had a discussion and we switched from a business development perspective, 100% focus on commercial, we switched that to 80 or 90% focus on government. And that's now resulted in a bunch of interesting contracts and, and things are moving. So that's how we were able to pivot that focus, but really use it and drive it forward to, to do one thing. And from a technical perspective, that became the fueling ports. And, and so we moved our focus, but it's always one thing that we're going to win right now. Mm. Okay. Now, now let's, let's give the one-liner for what Orbit Fab does, at least <laughs> right now, so that, so that everybody can be on the same page. Orbit Fab is building gas stations in space. Mm. Mm. That's it. Okay. We, are, we, are, we, we want to support that transition from a space economy to an economy in space. So an economy in space is where you're actually exchanging goods and services in space, and it doesn't exist right now. Uh, but we want to support that. And so what is the infrastructure that's needed so that people can then build an economy in space? And we saw propellant as a key part because what it gives you is mobility. It gives you the ability to move around, which currently doesn't exist. You put a satellite up mm -hmm. and most of the operations really are around trying to minimize how much fuel you use. They're trying to minimize how much you have to move, which breaks my brain. I mean, we don't get in a car and think, about right, what's, the, what's the shortest way to get to the shops? And how can I go to the shops the least number of times this month? Um, but, that's, but that's how satellites are operated. So if we can break that paradigm, a lot more business models will be opened up and people will be able to do things, exchange things and operate in space. So that's it. We, we, our mission is to deliver that access to unlimited mobility. And so we build the technologies and the tankers and the whole supply chain, everything else to deliver propellant so that people can have unlimited mobility in space. Okay. Would that have been your focus if, if DSI had gotten to go mine an asteroid, bring materials back and be able to create something in orbit? Uh, and maybe that's beyond what the scope of DSI was. I'm not sure. Uh, is that what you would have created first back then? So, yeah, let me, let me back to, to yeah. DSI. When DSI was founded, um, the, the premise was there are, there are people out there with resources, with, mm. with money, who are prepared to back this. And so let, let's go find them. Let's talk to them. Let's show them our plans. Let's get together the best technical team that know about asteroids and how to, how to mine asteroids, about mining, about spacecraft. And let's sell them an asteroid mining solution so they can invest in it and we can go and do this. What we found out was that there were no billionaires beating down the doors to do that. And that was what, that's what the original team found out and, uh, before I came on board. So when I came on board as the CEO, uh, recognizing that that wasn't the case, uh, I had two other potential strategies. So one was to build technology and, uh, oh, sorry, one, one was to get funding by, by going to VCs. And so rather than going to high net worth individuals and billionaires, let's go to VCs and let's show them how quickly we can ramp into sales and that there's big growth play and see if they'll fund the asteroid mining. That also drew a blank. The VCs looked at that and said, where's the market for, for this coming out of? And then the third one, which was the successful one, was let's build products. Let's build things that will, the technology will get us to the asteroid and mm -hmm. find markets for them today. And what we found was that worked. And so we got in just enough investment to hire the engineering team. We built the thrusters to move satellites around in orbit. I described that strategy running on water, which one day we could get out of an asteroid. And so that was, that was sort of the crux of, it, of that strategy was let's build the tech we need. But when you look at that, First, we're building the thruster technology, one, then two, then uh, a range of thrusters. Um, part of my strategy, which didn't get followed through after I left, was that we would also build spacecraft. And so while I was there, we won the prime contract 
um, to build the Hawkeye 360 spacecraft, which is a constellation of three mm. spacecraft. Now, we outsourced the actual building of the spacecraft. We built the thrusters, we managed the program, we organized the launch, but somebody else built the spacecraft. But the strategy was to build more of those pieces so that we would have a complete offering of a spacecraft with, with of course, continuing to get some from suppliers. And then one day we'd be able to mine an asteroid and we could be our own customer. So operating a spacecraft for a custom, for, for one of our customers, we would take the propellant and use it and be able to do things more cheaply than our competition because we had the propellant supply from asteroids. Mm. And of course, if you don't believe that you can operate more cheaply in space with the supply of materials from asteroids, then you shouldn't be mining asteroids. And so that was part of that development process. So it was a, it was a multi-phase mm. process to be able to, to build that out. So when would we be mining asteroids? in that process well it depended how fast we can go how well capitalized and all those types of things hmm. um, but when you look at that what we did with OrbitFab, we definitely put water thrusters on the map that's now a thing there are seven companies selling thrusters that run on water now um, hmm. but one of the obvious next steps you can we create that supply of propellant on orbit uh, another thing that's needed is rendezvous and docking and satellite service right that needs to become a common thing but there are 34 companies working on that now hmm. Northrop Grumman recently successfully attached their satellite uh, their servicing satellite to Intel 901. So that's a commercial service. So we're seeing these barriers fall. We don't have to build them all. But at OrbitFab, yeah, we saw this gap in the propellant supply and said, hey, let's do that. There are other gaps. So when you ask what would I be doing if, if uh, deep space industries succeeded in mining? Well, right now, I'd still be working on that because it is a long path. But we'd be chipping away at one after the next after the next of those barriers, finding new areas where we can make money we can serve the customers, we can grow the ecosystem and build that out. That's the, that's the path that we were on. Uh, now I'm just doing it in, in another company. Right. So it really is about infrastructure. And, and I've got this phrase, make space boring, that I'm using as positioning and marketing, right? And it's the normalization of it, right? Where it, it just is yeah. a thing and we all go do it and we, we don't freak out about it. Dr. Gordon Ressler described it as like, you don't go to the airport and, and worry about whether the planes are going to fall out of the sky, right? It's just a normal thing, but it's cool. Yep. Right? And, and interesting things happen, but it's not terrifying. So that's uh, absolutely right. And, and I'd use the phrase economy in space. So mm -hmm. let's build an economy in space. That's, that's at the core of what I want to do. Okay. And at some point, that will justify the first permanent job in orbit, which is my personal job. Mm -hmm. I love that idea. Yes, people going to space jobs the way that they go to any, any job. It's just they don't even call it that, right? There's no yeah. need for that That's word it. there. It's just another <laughs> job. Honing yeah. in on that, because that is going to be mm. such a paradigm shift. When there's, mm. when there's even one person who's permanently employed in space, you're not going to want to bring them back into the earth, right? That, that has a cost. From a business perspective, you don't want to change them out. They have expertise. They know what they're doing. It, it's cheaper to keep them there. So you might pay them you know, no salary in the first year because who wouldn't sign up? But then they've been there a year. They want to come back. So you pay them a million dollars in the second year because it will cost you $10 million to change them out or something like mm. that. And then in the third year, what do you do? You offer them $5 million? You're still, you're still ahead. In the fourth year, they really want to come back. I mean, at, at some point, you're going to have to make their life better in orbit. And so you start investing in things like a better food supply, make them more comfortable. What if we put two people up there instead of staying for, for one year each, they stay for five years together or permanently. And then once they're there and they consider that they're, perma they're there permanently, they're getting their weekends off because they're just employees. 
and, and what do they do? They take a module, they call it their, their little workbench, they go and tinker with things, and they start fixing things that annoy them. And I can tell you, the first thing they'll fix is the toilets. <laughs> and the toilets, they're terrible, right? Because you're dealing with goo right. and liquids and in no space. Gravity. <laughs> right. Show me somebody who understands how goo and liquids behave in zero gravity. There is nobody, nobody mm -hmm. has experience because nobody's had a bench in a module on a Saturday afternoon that they can just mess around with and play around with goo and, and you know, mix some water and flour together and see what it does and play around with liquids and figure out that in zero G, you can confine things in really interesting and easy ways that nobody had figured out. And it will completely change things. And the first thing they'll fix is the toilet. And then it'll be a nicer place to live. And then they'll go on and fix other things. And they will start inventing small things that improve their standard of living. That we just have no idea there are even problems on the ground. Because in the worst case now, an astronaut's up there for six months or a year, they know they're coming home. Just put up with it. They've got a checklist of things to do. They're exhausted. You're not giving them that space. And you're not giving them that incentive. And the next thing you know, someone will invent some new way to make things that has a, a commercial potential on the ground that nobody had ever imagined and the world will change. Right? That's what I really look forward to. So from one permanent job in orbit, I can see this exponential trajectory take off, but we aren't at one yet and we don't really know what that job is gonna be. Hmm. Well, there is a paradigm shift. Uh, the tinkering is really, really important in the downtime. I think Google funds their people to have a certain amount of time to work on side projects. I don't know, yeah. But I heard about that. And um, I do know that the one of the top American fighters in World War II, the, the Mustang, was developed with British and, and American engineers who went away for a weekend. It wasn't some yeah. huge project of government-directed uh, activity. They just went away and but took a mediocre plane and stuck a really good engine in it. But they understood what the problems were. Mm, they understood they were there. the operating environment. They knew what would make mm. a difference. Yeah, mm -hmm. the, the difference between an efficient system, a system that works, is comfortable, is usable and everything else, and a really bad system is often very subtle. Hmm. And unless you're familiar with those subtleties, you can really screw it up. We just don't have anybody who understands zero G yet. So hmm. to, to, to keep playing on that theme, because I, yeah. I do think it's so important. Uh, a, a couple of hundred years ago, um, I, I, I need to look up the name of the guy who did this. Uh, someone invented a vacuum pump. And, and they made vacuum available on industrial scales. And it's a stupid idea, like, we will take the air away. If, what use is that? Congratulations, I give you a sticker. Um, but over the next hundred years, taking the air away completely changed industry. We got refrigeration, we got vacuum packaging, we got all the chemical processes that happen under different, under different levels of vacuum. It, was, it revolutionized industry, and it took a hundred years to, to run through. That was vacuum, we're taking away air. You're taking pressure away. Now we get the chance to take away gravity. Gravity is the force that organizes matter at a macroscopic level, right? And we're going to take that away from our process? Like what, what are we gonna be able to do? No one has any idea because it seems like a silly thing to do. You're just taking away gravity. There's no use in that, I can't see the application. In the next 100 years, all manufacturing will change. Mm -hmm. And we just have no idea how. Right. I, I'm super excited about that. And the folks that I talked to who are doing the lunar and Martian construction method research, they're talking about these same things because gravity yeah. is obviously different. Uh, and, and anybody who wants to 
throw a satellite into the side of an asteroid to find out <laughs> what it's made out of that kind of thing. Um, the, the, the lack of gravity is just, it makes everything behave weirdly. I know Nicole Shoemaker yeah. was describing to me some kind of experiment with uh, bubbles being formed in a liquid in zero G and you go, what the heck is that for? Well, we don't know yet. <laughs> but, so, yeah, if you can imagine um, constraining a material in zero G, I can constrain a gas without a without a, a, a rigid box. I just put it inside a, a blob of, of liquid. Hmm. And I can keep the blob of liquid from touching the walls with small jets of air or something. Like that. Mm -hmm. There's so many things we do. Imagine what you can do with a plasma. So one of the big, hmm. biggest problems with fusion research is the buoyancy of the plasma and the fact that you've got to try and keep it confined and from touching the walls and everything. If you put it in space, you take away half of those forces. And so that might be one way that we can get fusion working a lot better and understand mm. the processes that are going on. Yeah, there's so many. There's a, there's, a, there's a long list of things that we know about that are intriguing and interesting now, but no one's had Saturday afternoon in a garage to tinker with it. Hmm. And suddenly you've got advanced energy production. <laughs> really like it. Yeah. it. It may not be suddenly, but it may be. Right? Huh. We just don't know yet. Okay. Well, let's hop back to the distant past for our last question for you. Uh, it's about Antarctica. You had this educational experience in Antarctica. Um, I'm just reading from it here. You covered scientific, environmental, and political issues that seem to be a big deal. Um, and I got this from your LinkedIn profile, so obviously it's important to you. What <laughs> sticks with you from that experience and how does it apply to the work you're doing today? Yeah, so I actually got into that because I wanted a small KA band transponder to be able to use for deep space spacecraft because you go to higher frequencies, you can use smaller components. Um, and so we tried to find a use for that and ended up uh, looking at high-speed internet for Antarctica, got some funding from the Australian government, built the first KE band transponder for a CubeSat. Um, and that's been commercialized with a couple of companies here in California now. Um, so, but, but through that, we were looking at what the market was in Antarctica and whether we could build a, a communications constellation to serve that. I found out about a course in New Zealand, which was a postgraduate certificate in Antarctic studies. And we studied basically everything to do with Antarctica, art, history, environmental science, the politics, the regulations, the operations, geology, the biology, everything you can imagine. And we spent two days down on the ice, which was, which was a lot of fun as well. Um, the things that stuck with me, stuck with me, the, one of the reasons that I, that I really wanted to do that was to understand operations in an extreme environment, but also the regulation of a jurisdiction which is considered the common heritage of mankind, which is the same language that shows up in the Outer Space Treaty. But the Antarctic Treaty System is a treaty system, not a UN body or a UN um, uh, treaty like the, the Outer Space Treaty. It's administered very differently. And they're actually in Antarctica, and this is the thing that stuck with me. In Antarctica, they had regulated, that agreed on regulations for mining. They agreed how they were going to regulate mining, how they're going to issue mining licenses. The consortium of companies that, that are part of that Antarctic treaty system had agreed on that in all of their committees. And then they sent it back to the countries for ratification. Over the next couple of years, due to domestic politics in Australia and, and, and France, they ended up instead passing a moratorium against mining. But you can still find that on the internet, the Antarctic Mining Treaty. And even though it wasn't ratified, it's a, it's a great document to look at and think this could have come out of a treaty system. Would that have come out of a UN system? Mm. And so you get to compare and contrast the two. And then hearing how 
environmental aspects of the Antarctic system, why they're there, how they play out, how different countries perceive them, uh, and then how that's regulated and what they consider a success uh, versus how they morph things that have happened and then can declare them a success in, post, in the analysis afterwards. Very interesting to see how that all worked on the international scheme. So it was really around the regulations, licensing, how countries worked together in that environment that I found the most interesting and has really informed what I'm doing. Yeah, the policy guy in me is really interested in that. Daniel, you have expanded my brain in a number of ways today. <laughs> I've been thinking about a bunch of different things. So if my face goes non-smiley, folks, and you're watching, that's because I'm thinking. And <laughs> there's been four or five really, really interesting things to think about here. So um, where can folks follow? I guess there's orbitfab.com. Is that, is that the best place to go to keep up with events? Yeah, orbitfab.space is a, is a yeah. URL, orbitfab.space. Uh, we're on LinkedIn. We're on Twitter. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll soon have a YouTube account. We don't yet. Maybe by the time this comes out. Um, uh, so, yeah, there's, uh, those are a few ways. And uh, if you want to get involved with this, especially if you're starting up a company, uh, especially if your company is going to create new exports from space to the ground, uh, I'd really like to talk with people who are thinking about that. Uh, that's something I'm very passionate about personally. From the company's perspective, if you need propellant, if that can help you in orbit, of course, talk to us. We will do everything we can to help you get your business off the ground. All right. Now, I, I talked with Dennis Wingo um, not too long ago, and he mentioned, I mean, we were talking about some of his projects, and he mentioned a parasitic, this is the term that he used, uh, vehicle that would go up and grab a, an older satellite or something. Does your system work that way, or are you actually refueling their, their fuel pod or something like that? Yeah, so Dennis actually got a here. patent on mm -hmm. how to connect to other right. satellites that Northrop Grumman have used and licensed from mm -hmm. him um, that their successful docking with the satellite. I call it a jetpack. They mm -hmm. attach a jetpack mm -hmm. and it flies the satellite yeah. so that it, it doesn't have to transfer fuel. Um, so we look to refuel it. We're building that fuel supply chain. We're not actually building a satellite servicing vehicle. So you can think of satellite servicing vehicles as tow trucks. They go up, they mm -hmm. grab a satellite, they tow it around, they move it, maybe they do some repairs to it, they'll do some inspection. These tow trucks, the, the business model right now is you build a tow truck, you go and, and tow three cars with your shiny new tow truck, you run out of fuel, you throw away your tow truck, and you buy another tow truck. And if that sounds ridiculous, you're right, it is. What we do is provide a gas station, mm -hmm. and it just sits there, and the tow trucks can come and get more gas. That's how we get this business off the ground. So those tow truck companies are our natural customers. Mm -hmm. They're the ones that we really want to help out. The Constellation operators, the, the, the satellites in geostationary orbit or low Earth orbit, we're not actually expecting to sell directly to them, at least not in the short term. We'll let these tow trucks deal with that, make the final delivery of fuel or any other services. And there are several different business models for these tow trucks. But yeah, yeah the tow trucks are our customers. That's, that's what we do. We sell fuel to any tow truck that comes along to buy it. All right. Well, I'm glad I asked that last question because it <laughs> super clarified everything for me. So thank you very much for that. My guest today has been Daniel Faber, CEO of Orbit Fab in the past uh, with DSI. Thanks for being here. Thanks very much. Great to be here, Jason. 
Hey, this is Jason Canigan, the host of the Cold Star Project and the founder of Cold Star Technologies. I've decided to do something new. I've started doing daily update videos on who I met and what I learned the previous day in the space field. And it's a great sort of follow me thing. You can learn what I learn. I'm meeting a heck of a lot of people and learning a lot of things really fast. And the space field is really disparate. There are tons of nooks and crannies to go into and explore from legal, operational, you know, regulatory compliance and gosh the end customer who would have thought about that right so you can sign up for this if you go to coldstartech.com slash msb that's short for make space boring the mission we're on then you can sign up and in your email you will get a daily notification that the new video has been posted I'm also thinking about doing some branded mini courses and summarizing papers as uh, I'm able to. So those will be some goodies that are in there as well. So if you're interested in that, go to coldstartech.com msb and join us on the mission to make space boring. Mm -hmm.